Hello, folks. Welcome back to the 25th episode of Myth, the first and last word, a bi-weekly program examining the myths of our world. I'm Echo Kane, an artist, musician, storyteller, ecologist, and educator interested in the socio-cultural historical interactions found within spirituality, myth, and religion. Twice a week, we attempt to better make sense of our rapidly changing and confusing modern world with the help of both ancient and contemporaneous myths from a wide variety of cultures. Today, we'll be looking at the myth Opossum Steals Fire from the Mazatec people of the Oaxaca region of Mexico. Join me today on a journey into the past and the present. A voyage of the soul to understand itself, where we find both the first written word and the mystery of the last word entwined through time. Welcome to the world of myth. The people that our myth comes from today, the Mazatec, are a very difficult people to talk about because they do not have a very tight-knit culture, a unified sense of culture. And this point is really important to understand before we even get into the history. The Mazatec history coincides with the history of those that surround them and also diverges from it significantly. And their history has often been ill-studied or simply not recorded at all. In fact, I had to buy a special book in order to even begin talking about the Mazatec history. Because online there are fragmentary notes, a few little references, most of them wrong, if the history book that I have access to is anything to believe, which was written by Benjamin Feinberg and is called The Devil's Book of Culture, in reference to an experience the author had of a Mazatec uh, person offering them the access to culture and the author, Benjamin Feinberg, refusing, choosing instead to write about more so the anthropology and not necessarily all of the culture of the Mazatec, respecting their limits, their boundaries. I, it's a very powerful story. I would highly suggest the book if you are interested in the topic after listening to me talk about the history. So let's talk about it. The history of the Mazatec is, as I said, relatively unrecorded, especially before the conquistadors reached the region, of course. The Mazatec can be found in a small part of Oaxaca containing Teotitlan, Cuicatlan, and Tuxtepec. Most publications and scholarship about the Mazatec are fairly recent and concern the linguistics of the Mazatec tongue. Archaeologists and anthropologists often misattributed work to the Mazatec, especially art. In fact, there seems to be a dwindling number of surviving Mazatec historical artifacts as artifacts are attributed to other local peoples over time. Now, it is possible that modern attributions are incorrect, 
though the obscure nature of the Mazatec history makes any definitive statement difficult to say about either artifacts or their history in general. In the current day, there are 168,000 Mazatec speakers, so a fairly large group, uh, and they're spread across a diverse landscape of 2,400 square kilometers. Now, this larger region is split into three main sections, and even more so into two main sections. These sections are denoted by elevation, and thus the climate that uh, exists in these places. These are Tierra Fria, Tierra Templada, y Tierra Caliente, or cold mountainous highlands, foothills, and hot scrubby lowlands. Teotitlan encompasses the highlands, and Tuxtepec covers the lowlands. These are the uh, more binaristic model of cutting up the land of the Mazatec. Cattle and sugarcane are farmed in the lowlands, and it's a generally less populous region. Oppositely, the highlands contain a lot more people, especially the temperate parts of the highlands, and they mostly grow coffee for export there. Corn and beans are grown throughout the region as the staple source of food. And this seems to have been the way things worked pretty much throughout Mazatec history, in terms of how they acquired their food. It was a mixture of trading and subsistence farming. The pre-European contact history is mostly unknown, due to conquistadors mostly interacting with the more prominent groups of Mexico, including the Mixtec, Aztec, and Zapotec peoples whose histories were related to Spanish colonizers and occasionally mentioned the Mazatec, but really only in passing. The short references indicate that the Mazatec acted as a border state and were regularly visited by the Mixtec. Some of these visits would have been violent raids for conquest and tribute, while others were for peaceful trade. The Mixtec were allied with the Aztec, and their leader, Cosca Uautli, was named the king of Uautla, the most central and important city of the Mazatec, after one of these conquest raids. In the late 1400s CE, Aztec outposts were built in both the lowland and highland region. The Aztecs did not directly rule the Mazatec, but collected tribute from the Sierra. This would remain the status quo until at least 1581 CE, when a Spaniard named Don Francisco de Castaneda wrote of this practice of tribute being given to the Aztecs. He cites the process as occurring every 80 days, and including blankets, uepiles, or dresses, shields, jewelry, bows and arrows, and even slaves. It seems likely that the Mazatec acted as slave labor for the construction of the famous Aztec temples. Similar to other colonized peoples, the Mazatec spoke both the language of their colonizer and their native language. In the case of this relationship, the Mazatec leaders spoke Nahuatl to communicate to the Aztecs. Trade continued with all people in the region, and Mazatec goods could be found throughout Mesoamerica during this period. After King Montezuma was murdered and Tenochtitlan, the capital of the Aztec Empire, fell to the Spanish conquistadors, 
The region of Oaxaca was subsumed into what was swiftly becoming Nueva España, New Spain. This was somewhat welcomed by the Mazatec, as they had allied with the Spanish against their long-term oppressors, the Aztecs. Strangely, our history becomes more spotty at this time, as the Mazatec were so easily conquered by the Spanish that they rarely interacted with them. The Mazatec delivered tribute to the Spanish via the encomienda system, which promoted slave labor for the benefit of Spanish plantation owners. Three waves of epidemics spread throughout the region in the late 1500s CE, likely caused by European introduction of illness. There was also a concerted effort to establish distinct towns for the Mazatec, which was altogether swift and seems to have occurred with little pushback from the Mazatec. Most historians agree that the shift in power did not appear drastic for the Mazatec, as they had already experienced at least a century of slavery and constant tribute to the Aztecs. In comparison, the tribute that was demanded by the Spaniards was diminished compared to the Aztec demands. Some Jesuit missionaries started churches in the region, However, they seem to have been rarely frequented by the Mazatec and were pretty much unsuccessful. The Mazatec maintained a form of aristocracy and monarchy that seems to have been shaped by their experiences with the Aztecs. Their leader was called a cacique, and according to the widow of the last cacique, who was assassinated in the late 1800s, the cacique was a person who was chosen by multiple towns for the purpose of religious and legal rule. This decision was made based on character witness and the personality of the candidate. This would be depicted visually via an animal whose image or body would be placed in shrines and at religious meetings. Most traditional practices like these were ended in Oaxaca by 1700 CE, so the duration of these customs into the 1800s demonstrates that though connected to the rest of the region, the Mazatec were able to maintain their traditions, leadership structure, and religion under Spanish rule, which was quite rare. Travel between the lowlands and highlands remained consistent, though still difficult. Trade was emphasized through the designation of certain rituals requiring items from the lowlands and others from the highlands. Thus, crossing this divide became a sacred, important journey. This may have to do with beliefs about the power of thresholds, the sacred nature of mountains and high up places, the importance of travel, or even simply how long and complicated a journey could be. The most prevalent export at the time was cochineal dye, derived from certain types of beetles uh, native to the region. This trade had dried up sometime around 1900 CE, though. The Mazatec played a very minor role in the Mexican Revolution, briefly harboring guerrilla fighters under the command of a liberal political leader named Perez Figueroa. A few other figures would then emerge from the Mazatec and became generals in the revolution. In 1893, the first hacienda established itself in the Sierra, cultivating coffee. 
Workers were likely Mazatec and were not paid with real money. Gregorio Herrera, a leader in Huautla, was advised to focus on coffee production for his people. He did so in the highlands during the 1950s, preventing the encroaching haciendas in the lowlands to usurp the power of the Mazatec in the highland region. This, however, did increase the class tensions between the highlands and lowlands. Now, I've been going kind of fast here, and I want to pause just for a moment so we can take a deep breath. I just went through about 300 to 400 years of history in about two to five minutes. Like, I'm pretty bad with time. <laughs> that's a lot. Now, that's all we have. There were probably lots of internal political things going on, alliances with different peoples around them, complications with Spanish relations, and eventually relations with the Mexican government. So there's a lot more going on here that either I don't know, and it might exist in certain records out there, or nobody knows anymore, and it is just completely lost to time. So take a deep breath and recognize that what has happened here is we have gone from a period of direct colonization from Spain and the asking for tribute and slaves to a slightly more subtle approach of capitalism and ultimately colonialism still. The Coconil dye is a great example of that as we have pretty much run out of this dye in the modern age because a lot of these beetles were hunted pretty much to extinction. I don't think they were to direct extinction, but pretty close. The dye is still used in some makeups these days. I would avoid them if you could. It's generally good not to use potentially endangered species in what you put on your face or wear. The Mazatec pretty much remained in the same structure as they had been during Aztec rule with slight changes culturally and with what uh, trade they were conducting over this period. During the 1930s, there was an increase in banditry and theft in the region, which led to a snafu where the entire government of Uautla was assassinated. The reason remains unclear, and it's further unclear whether it was the Mexican government or local criminals that sent the order. Intermediaries ruled the discourse of the Sierra. Being a political or economic mediary was quite dangerous. Highwaymen regularly stole goods from traders and people just traveling about. Political leaders played a balancing game of allowing progress into the lives of the Uautecos and maintaining their independence as a town. By the 1990s, these criminals became less prominent as roads began to crisscross between the different towns of the Mazatec. At first, Teotitlan and Uautla were the only connected towns, but that slowly increased. In 1963, Eresto Pineda, a Uauteco leader sympathetic to the government, led a campaign to bring the road, electricity, better prices, and greater government intervention to Uautla. He was killed shortly after the campaign began. The Mazatec were expected to work to build the roads themselves, sometimes forced to do so. 
In many ways, the introduction of roads was the true end to Mazetek rule, as the economic control maintained by the elite leaders of the Mazetek began to be supplanted by the cheaper prices of the wider world, now easier to access by road. Now backing up a little bit, in 1955, a dam was built close to Tuxtepec, flooding at least two lowland towns. The new ecosystem formed by the dam and the dislocation of thousands of people further dismantled the identity of the lowland Mazatec, who were already oppressed by the poor working conditions of the coffee farms that were uh, becoming prominent in this region and were not run by the Mazatec at all, unlike the ones in the highlands. The 1960s saw a great influx of tourists to the region interested in psychotropic mushrooms used by the Mazatec in their religious ceremonies. These mostly American travelers brought a lot of money to the town, but would be somewhat careless about respecting the customs of its people. The flow of tourists is all but a trickle today, as it was really the hippie movement that pushed a lot of people to travel down to Uautla, as well as certain accounts from prominent members in that movement in America who had gone to Uautla and talked about their experiences with magic mushrooms in that region. In the 1970s, an educated man returned to his hometown of Uautla and began to campaign for the Popular Socialist Party, or PPS. The dominant party, PRI, was favored by the Mazatec elite, who mostly inhabited the upper barrios of the town. The lower barrios joined the PPS, and after a short, bloody conflict, implemented a system of democracy, leaving the oligarchy of councils in the past. The Mexican government made use of the situation in the 1980s, positioning the PPS leaders within Inme Cafe, the coffee production institution that was implemented by the Mexican government in the 1960s prior, which led the charge to control coffee export in especially the lowland region. Now, this made the dwellers of Uautla believe that the PPS were their oppressors, despite only having been placed in positions of relative power under duress, as allowing the relationship with Inme Cafe to devolve would lead to a degradation of the entire town economy of the Sierra. The PPS slowly lost ground due to this economic war in the 1980s and 1990s, slipping away into obscurity. The PRI, on the other hand, became the first battleground over ethnicity had in the village. The party backed a candidate that was not supported by the Council of Elders, who ran their own. The elders claimed that they were the only ones to uphold the quote-unquote true ways of the Mazetec. The government candidate likely had a few dissidents killed, which led to widespread violence in voting lines and burnt ballot boxes. Unable to reach a conclusion, the factions agreed to jointly lead Uautla, government, PRI, and PPS. The alliance 
though strained, held surprisingly well. In the 1980s, coffee prices crashed. This brought poverty upon Uautla during the aforementioned complicated political situation. The event led to general mistrust of international trade and perhaps even a disgust with the coffee crop. This experience of continued economic strife and uh, coffee exportation and the use of uh, corn and beans remaining as subsistence staples continues to be the experience of the Mazatec in their town of Uautla and the surrounding region. It's strange, almost, how quickly this history reads, but how confusing it is. I bet it was very hard to follow exactly what was happening, especially at the end there, because there's a lot of different groups here. Because there is not one Mazetek culture, and that's what you should really get out of this history, that the Mazetek are a collection of different peoples in a strange, isolated border region. It can be thought of as Sikesland or Transylvania, if you're familiar at all with that region in Eastern Europe. A, a border region that was just very different from all surrounding areas. It's just how these regions sort of work, and they're often defined by their elevation. So you can see that the Mazetek are not formed into a unified culture, but a diverse set of what Benjamin Feinberg, the author of the book where I got this information from, calls metacultural discourses. Now, that's a big word that means evolving minor cultures, basically. A overturning of the same ideas over and over again in different ways to come up with new and novel ways of being and ways of responding to the external pressures of the world. All of that being said, the history of the Mazatec informs this myth today, and I'm curious, I haven't read the myth yet, but I'm curious what exactly will pop out as being from this history, because this might be one of the first times that somebody has actually recorded an analysis of a myth from the Mazatec with a full, or at least mostly full, understanding of their history. I am very proud to be in this position right now, and I hope that you are as well, listener. I would be very interested if anybody who is Mazatec is listening to this, as rare as that might be, if you have any information about your people that you would like to share, or about this myth, if it is, it might not even be a myth from the Mazatec. That's the other thing. This could be misattributed. This myth is cited to have come from a Pablo Guerrero, who is attributed as being Mazatec, and was translated from Spanish in Inchaustehui.
possum steals fire. They say there was an old woman who managed to keep the fire when it had scarcely become separated from certain stars or planets. She was fearless and went to get the fire where it had fallen. She kept it a long time. Then, after a while, people decided that this fire ought to be for everybody, and not just for the old woman. So they went to the old woman's house and asked for fire. But the old woman was ferocious. She would not give it to anyone. Time passed, and word traveled that this old woman had managed to keep fire, but would not share it. Then Opossum came along and said to the people, I, Opossum, promise to give you fire if you promise never to eat me. Then everyone made fun of the poor creature, but he remained calm and answered them. Stop making fun of me, because you are only making fun of yourselves. This very evening you will see that my promise has been fulfilled. When evening came, the opossum went visiting from house to house, saying he was going to get fire from the old woman, so that others might collect as much of it as they could. When he arrived at the old woman's house, he said to her, Good evening, Lady Fire. How cold it is. I'd like to stand next to your fire for a moment and warm myself. The cold is killing me. The old woman really believed the opossum was cold, and she allowed him to come close to the fire. But this was a clever one, and he kept getting closer and closer and closer and closer until he could put himself into the fire. Then he put his tail down, and that's how he was able to catch it. When his tail had caught fire, he ran as far as he could, sharing the fire. And that's why opossums today have a bald tail. What a lovely myth. This myth is highly ideological, right? Hopefully, if you've been listening along with me, you'll pick up on that. You'll recognize that this not only explains to people how fire appeared in the world, but it also shows us how, and perhaps why, opossums have bald tails. Now, of course, that's not actually why opossums have bald tails. But I'm sure if you see enough opossums, you're going to start asking yourself that. And if you're not an ecologist or a biologist or whatever, you're not going to know. And so you can kind of build it into a story for yourself, one that can explain multiple things. I do think it's very interesting the use of an old woman to be keeping the fire away. Oftentimes, the fire is kept in some far-off place by a far-away deity, something like a Zeus or a god concept. But an old woman is so much closer to home. Most of us know an old woman in our lives. <laughs> Most of us don't know Zeus or God. And so the idea that just a sort of archetype of person would keep this very important thing from people is odd to me. 
The old woman might be representing something that is only readable if you are a part of the Mazatec culture, as I don't really have the tools to break apart what old woman represents here. And that's something that's really important to note. I've said this a couple times in previous episodes, but analysis is not just about saying what you do know. It often sounds like that, but analysis to me includes also what you don't know. Like we know that this myth is ideological. It's making sense of the world around it like so many other myths do. But the exact metaphors are unclear and ill-defined. What does it mean that the opossum is ridiculed? What does it mean that the opossum is clever? It seems that opossum is an archetypal trickster character, similar to Boki from episode 2, or even the Shianganen from episode, I think, 11? Maybe 13? I think 13. One of those. This is a common theme, a common character, that exists throughout a number of different mythologies. The forgotten trickster, the clever slave, ultimately, as this archetype carries into not only Roman plays and literature, but also all the way up to Shakespeare and modern English. Now, I'm not familiar with modern literature in all the languages of the world, but I'm sure there's trickster characters there as well. Humans love to hear about people getting bamboozled. It's one of our favorite types of stories, a reversal. I find that films and books that end in a big fight scene are a little bit boring to me. I am much more interested when a story ends with a reversal, a motion of minds, a clever use of plot and narrative to create a conflict resolution that is surprising to the audience. Now, to us that are likely familiar with other fire theft myths, the tropes in this story are relatively common, and you could probably see the outcome from a mile away. Opossum steals fire. Well, what is the opossum going to do? Well, as you hear, it gets closer and closer. You're like, oh, it's going to get on its tail or its fur and it's going to run out or something. And what part of the opossum is bald and might have been hit by fire? It all sort of logically works out narratively and in that structural way that literature works. But of course, it doesn't work in a literal way because we know that opossums didn't literally all get burned on their tails. That's a Linnaean way of looking at inheritance of traits, which would be pretty funny. Like the idea that you chop off your arm and all of your children are going to have chopped off arms now. And they're all going to only have one arm. <laughs> Oops, now humans will always have one arm. That's just not how the world works, and we know that now. But people have not always had the same concept of what genetics is and how inheritance works at all. I think that this myth is very hard to analyze because it follows an archetypal structure so rigorously that it is almost entirely devoid of meaning. Other than the old woman and the ridicule of the opossum, which are pretty hard to uh, completely understand, 
I suppose it could be an idea about elitism with the opossum being ridiculed, the idea that the people on top will laugh at and ridicule the people on the bottom just because they are there. And in that way, this could be a note about oppression and colonization from both the Aztecs, Spaniards, and Mexican government. This understanding of the myth posits opossum as the Mazatec people themselves. But this doesn't completely fit with the myth because it is the people of the town that make fun of opossum. So who is opossum and who are the people? That is the real question. And who is the old woman? Is the old woman Spain or the Mexican government or, or one of these colonizing forces? Or is it the people? It certainly isn't opossum. We know that. And this is often what analyzing myth devolves into is what do these metaphors mean historically? Because we do know that people have a tendency to talk about what they're feeling in the moment in story. And that's the only way that we can accurately try to make sense of mythology because it often posits itself separate from the real world, a, a sort of doppelganger of the real world where strange things can occur, a magical realism, if you will. This approach to storytelling is found across the world, and it really is something special about myth. The other theory I have for tying this myth to the history of the Mazatec and the larger societal pressures that were acting on them is what if old woman represents the elders of the community and the common people are just people and opossum is a hero. Now, opossum is a hero in this myth, a trickster hero. But I mean a literal hero of the people, a messiah, a mashiach, if you will. I use that term uh, in Hebrew because messiah often gets conflated with Jesus, whereas the mashiach is a specifically Jewish messiah. And I think that the concept of mashiach is separate from messiah. Messiah is sort of something for all people to me. And I think that's how a lot of people read it in the modern day. Whereas we will be reading Mashiach as being a hero of a specific people. And so let's posit Opossum as that, as the Mashiach of the Mazatec. Old woman is the elders who are unwilling to change, unwilling to shift into an age of fire, an age of light, an age of newness. The people, they want this change as well. They are interested in progress, but they are unwilling to trick old women or forcibly take the fire from her. They are good people, fundamentally. I think that that's a very beautiful way of looking at it. These things are almost more literal than they are metaphorical. They, they, some of them remain metaphorical, like opossum. But old woman could be a literal old woman with this reading. And this follows a lot of what the American or Laurentian peoples in general focused on in myths. There was a 
demonstration not of a, an alternate world, a re completely religious one, but a very literal, real world that reflected the struggles of the non-mythical world. In that way, the mythical world is more simultaneous with our own. There is less friction there. Sure, an animal might speak occasionally, but who's to say that that's not happening behind closed doors and out of sight, out of mind when, you're, when you don't know about it? <laughs> Especially within cultures that believed that animals could talk with shamans and other spiritual leaders. These ideas are common across a number of different peoples, so it wouldn't be that far of a stretch that the Mazatec also believed in this. Furthermore, it is entirely possible that a cacique had the totem animal of opossum and fought either politically or literally in some way against a set of elders of whom an old woman might have been the leader. We don't know. It, it's very possible that this was just a way to get out frustration about a political situation that was going on in Uautla or the surrounding region. These different understandings represent both specific time periods non-specific time periods, general metaphors, specific metaphors, and even non-metaphors. That is how many ways you can analyze mythology when you don't have definitive interpretations. Mythology and religion allow for almost any interpretation that you throw at them. They are very good at morphing to what you understand about them, how you want to feel about their contours. This is not dissimilar to the ways in which people talk about stories today, and the way in which Robert Barthes, a famous literary scholar, described the death of the author. We can reinterpret these myths for the modern day. And even if the author never intended us to understand those ideas in that way, with that method, we still do. It's intrinsic to us now. We can't get rid of these new ideas. They're part of us. This is why traditionalism and fundamentalism are so broken. They seek to return to a time where certain ideas did not exist, certain technologies did not exist. But the truth is, is the cat's out of the bag. Pandora's opened the box. We can't go back anymore. And so my big question is when really this myth was recorded? That would tell us so much more because it could tell us whether or not the Mexican government is involved at all because that can scrub some of our understandings of the myth. It could tell us whether or not the Spanish were involved at all. They probably were almost certainly, because these myths were not written down prior to the Spaniards, certainly. Or it's possible that this myth was written at a very specific political time very recently, where we could give more credence to the political strife reading of the myth. The last thing I'm going to focus on here is the very beginning of the story in which fire descends from the heavens. I think that this could be representative of a number of things. Now, a lot of people 
are going to think that's aliens. Neocults. Remember, that's something we always talk about when we have an instance of something coming down from the sky. Neocults and New Age cults often posit uh, these sort of events of gods coming down to earth in mythology or gifts coming down to humans as a visitation from aliens. I'm going to disprove that because there is not enough reverence for this in the, in the myth. You'd think if something truly crazy happened, you know, they'd, they'd actually describe it. Why wouldn't they? It, it seems kind of strange, right? Furthermore, I don't think it's very well supported in general because the idea of something coming down from the sky that is white hot is very easily fulfilled by a whole number of different completely natural phenomena. So let's disregard the alien theory very quickly. Sorry, neocults, you're never right. It could be lightning. I think that that one is a very good likelihood because from the stars down to the earth, you couldn't really make sense of what lightning was if you were living at a time before science was very uh, well along. <laughs> lightning is a force almost beyond nature. It's hotter than the sun. It's hard for us to make sense of what that even means. It can make things burn. That's the important part. Unlike a meteorite, which maybe could make things burn if it landed in exactly the right place, lightning has a tendency to hit trees. And so you could very easily light a tree on fire. Someone would be like, whoa, ooga booga, that fire, right? And they pull the branch down or the tree down or whatever, and they light a big fire. And they're like, whoa, that's how you do that. Cool. They wait for the lightning. Maybe they figure out how to... Uh, harness that lightning to some extent, and eventually they figure out how to miniaturize that, how to make a spark, because sparks look like lightning. I think lightning probably taught a lot of people how to make fire and how to make glass eventually. The natural world teaches us readily, and I do think that the beginning of this myth is telling people to pay attention to the stars, the sky, the earth, the world around us, there is a lot to learn. You can learn how to make fire from the world if you wait long enough, if you watch well enough. That's a really powerful message, one that I don't think we hear enough. We are often told to pull up our bootstraps and just focus on the grind, and that's all. That is the way that you go about life. Do not look up, do not look down. Enjoy your television screen and the great things of modern medicine and modern society. And that's all very well and good. If you are enjoying those things, hey, power to you. But I want to look up at the stars. I want to see the beauty of the world and I want to learn from it. That is what I really want. And the beginning of this myth with old woman looking to the sky and seeing a fire come down, barreling upon the earth and exploding it into bright flame. That, to me, is the essence of learning from the world. In a moment, your entire way of thinking broken, a stable world made unstable by the chaos of the, of the storm, of the meteorite, if it is trying to refer to that, because that's a chaotic thing as well, a, an eccentrically orbiting 
asteroid that eventually hits Earth by chance. It's a rarity, and it's pretty cool when it happens, even if it can be dangerous if the asteroid is too big. Our world is a beautiful place. We should begin to care about it. Those things that we find from the world, we should not hide them away in our houses. We should share them with others. And if somebody is hiding something away, sometimes you have to trick them to get them to bring it to the rest of the world. I think of greedy businessmen, billionaires, Elon Musk, for instance. We need some way to trick these people to bring the many pieces of the world to the people. For if the many pieces of the world are defined by their capital value, as capitalism likes to do so, then why do the people have such little? Now, I don't want to be living in a capitalist system at all, so I wouldn't have anything to do with that. But it nonetheless also refers to knowledge. If you are an academic, share your work. Do not just uh, grind away on your research project, never uh, talking about it with other people. I make my research a an embodied process that, though independent, is readily shared with the world. That's what this is right now that you're listening to, a form of research and analysis that I make accessible to the rest of the world, not because I gain anything from it, but because I think the world is better when we share things, especially knowledge. And a knowledge of fire, a knowledge of prosperity, is an important thing to share. You've been listening to Myth, the first and last word with Echo Kane. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can support the show and my work by continuing to listen, following the show wherever you get your podcasts, and sharing this podcast everywhere that you can on the internet. I also compose, record, and produce my own music, which you can find on Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you stream music. And I think within a few months, this podcast will also be available on YouTube through a video format, not with my face, but just like a still image and, uh, you know, the podcast over that. Hopefully we'll, we can gain a little bit more audience that way and grab a couple more people who might be interested in listening through YouTube. If you are interested in my written or visual work, you can find my full artist profile on www.echocain.com. That's echocane.com. Next episode, we'll be exploring a myth called the Theogony of Dunu, which comes to us from ancient Mesopotamia. It complexifies a lot of our understanding of Mesopotamian culture, and we're going to start moving away from the uh, common narrative of Babylon being the center of everything in that region. Again, if you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions for the show, please compose one and only one email to theechocane at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And now, for the last word. Today's last word is... Locked.